This episode contains brief discussions of sexual assault. Please be advised as you continue to listen. My name is Ella Adams. And this is It Happened in Amherst. It Happened in Amherst. It Happened in Amherst. It Happened in Amherst. For It Happened in Amherst. I'm Rebecca Pereira. I'm Emily Klein. My name is Olivia Marble. I'm Izzy D'Amico. This is Sarah Abdelwahid. I'm Catherine Hurley. I'm Joey Albert. May 14th, 1970. September 19th, 2021. This is what student activism sounds like at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. As the flagship campus of Massachusetts, UMass Amherst has branded itself as revolutionary. The administration consistently pushes for students, staff, and faculty to answer new questions, challenge old conventions, and build a world where everyone, no matter their background, has the freedom to be themselves. A line taken directly from the university's website. My name is Izzy D'Amico, and I'm a junior studying journalism at UMass. During my three years here, I've seen students fight against bigotry, raise awareness for global tragedies, and strive to make this university a better and safer place for everyone. In this episode of It Happened in Amherst, I'm going to take a closer look at the history of student-driven protests at UMass Amherst and find out how activism here came to be. Vietnam War raged for 20 long years, from 1955 to 1975, but universities in the United States only became involved in anti-war protests in the late 60s. The reason? The newly reinstated military draft lottery. In 1969, there was a draft lottery where uh, they selected your numbers for your birth date. And if you were over like 200, say, you probably weren't going to get drafted. So that was a big thing. And that triggered a lot of anti-war interest and debate on campus. That was Mark Silverman, a graduate of the class of 1971 and the former managing editor for the Daily Collegian, a UMass student newspaper that's been around since 1890. The draft lottery he's talking about hadn't been used since the United States was fighting the Axis powers in 1942, but the government reinstated it to bolster its military forces, which have been growing in Vietnam since the early 60s. Every day of the year, including February 29th, was printed on little slips of paper, put into plastic capsules, and randomly drawn out of a glass jar. Each birthday was given a number to determine the order for the draft. Good evening. It was 29 years ago that the April first and most famous lottery number, 158, was drawn as the United August States entered 3rd. World War II. Tonight, for the first time in uh, 27 years, the United August States has again 3rd. started a draft lottery. September... 14. September 14, 
0-1. April 24. Some people could avoid the draft. Young men enrolled in four-year universities could get student deferments, but those only lasted until they finished their degrees. If they graduated or dropped out, their deferments wouldn't be valid anymore, and they'd have to join the military. It was early one evening, uh, the first draft lottery. So we were hanging numbers and birth dates out the window of the collegiate office, and people would look and it would say, you know, like February 18th, number 201. Uh, it was incredible. It was this huge crowd looking at that stuff. You could be dragged head over heels uh, into something you wanted no part of, and you had no choice. John Stavros, a journalism major who attended UMass from 1965 to 1969, agrees with Silverman. He also had a more personal opposition to the draft. I had the very good fortune of being 356 out of 365, so there was no pressure on me to go to war. Uh, my best friend from high school went. He got killed uh, um, in the first year that he was there. He was a second lieutenant from Bucknell. Uh, he had everything to live for, and you think I think about him frequently, about, you know, I'm living a good life, and he's gone. Silverman says before the draft lottery began, UMass wasn't home to many anti-war activists. It had been a 1950s-style campus up until the late 60s, honestly. Fraternities and sororities being the uh, center of social life, people going to class, coming back, and uh, going to mixers and socials and stuff like that. Almost no sense of uh, social awareness or, or any, anything like that. But Jim Foodie, UMass professor of journalism and graduate of the class of 1968, remembers a few important protests that happened before he graduated. There were several demonstrations on campus. Some of them were very specific. Uh, against the draft, for example. There was one rally that was anti-Dow Chemical because they were making the napalm that was being used to bomb villages and people. The rally Foodie is talking about happened on February 15, 1968. It started out as a demonstration against the Dow Chemical Corporation, the makers of napalm, and it ended as a sit-in inside of the student union. Napalm was the bomb of choice used against North Vietnamese troops and civilians to incite fear and burn away bushes soldiers could use as coverage. It's a combination of gel and gasoline that, once ignited, sticks to everything and burns at over 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Many anti-war activists saw napalm as a cruel and unnecessary weapon, and that made any company producing it a controversial presence on campus. According to a Daily Collegian article Foodie wrote as a senior, Around 80 student protesters were there raising awareness for many causes, from anti-war efforts to curriculum changes at UMass, by chanting, get the army out, and blocking the middle of the lobby in the student union, which was a hub of student traffic in the winter. The protest received enough attention from administration that then-president of UMass, John Lederly, held an open meeting with administrators and students a few days later to discuss the group's many grievances. Almost exactly a year later, in 1969, there was another protest on the UMass campus opposing the Dow Chemical Corporation, which had now sent representatives to interview graduating seniors. But this protest ended differently. <coughs> Student protesters set up outside the Whitmore Administration Building, marched north to the center of campus, and organized another impromptu sit-in at the student union.
Protesters carried signs reading, UMass students, don't sell your souls to the Dow Company, and chanted, don't drop your napalm on me. After setting up a bonfire outside the building and sitting in the lobby for more than six hours, 33 students were forcibly removed by 82 state policemen and then arrested and charged with trespassing. The dean of students, William Field, defended his decision to bring in the police by saying the students violated rules requiring on-campus protests to take place outside of UMass buildings. A student newsletter published the next day alleged the administration had not informed law enforcement the protesters wouldn't resist arrest. The newsletter then blamed administration for students being handled violently by law enforcement and one even being choked with a crowbar, despite pleas to stop from a nearby administrator. The protests at UMass were such a sharp turn from the normal atmosphere on campus that they attracted attention from local news outlets. An article about the 1969 protests and subsequent arrests appeared in the Springfield Union two days later, and it criticized student protesters for violating campus rules to make their point. The article read, quote, No matter how strong or sincere the belief of a student group that a university policy is wrong, changing it should not just be a matter of pouring on verbal and physical harassment. Any change, in any university's policy, should emerge from calm and reasoned discussion if it is to be sound. End quote. After the first round of the draft lottery in December 1969, the winter and spring of 1970 saw a transformation at UMass. Students who had gained a newfound interest in stopping the Vietnam War flocked to groups and individuals who had already established themselves as anti-war activists. So what was it like being a student during this time of unrest at universities? Oh, it felt alive and vibrant and exciting. And, you know, we were so removed from what was really going on. The feeling was the war was starting to go badly. And I mean, the campuses began to see how intellectually corrupt it was. And just as in any campus, that was one of the places where the anti-war movement started and started to ripple across the country. Um, and it was a very transitionary time. I mean, we were also involved with as students with going to school and living our lives and partying on weekends and everything else. That's John Stavros again. He says he personally witnessed UMass transition from a typical fraternity-driven campus to a campus with a purpose. And slowly campus started to get more activists and increasingly there were rallies held uh, down by the campus pond and uh, if you stood on the back of the student union and you looked out at the pond and that used to be packed with students and there would be speakers that would get up on the stage and agitate the students and try to get them excited and I can remember there's one kid his name was Eric the Red I believe and he was very tall he was six plus six four maybe and he would get up naked every time and stand there and just talk to the crowd totally naked, which I guess was an expression of free his freedom uh, or, you know, the movement at the time. So there was a meshing of that whole Woodstock culture, peace, love, and, and then the whole thing about the war. So it was pretty, pretty amazing when you think about it. Eric the Rat was a campus figure dedicated to activism, specifically on anti-war and anti-violence. His real name was Eric Lee Walgren, and he graduated from Amherst College in 1965. 
According to stories written by old classmates on his obituary page, Eric was well known on both campuses for his passion for activism, his eclectic behavior, and his fiery red hair. He slept on only a blanket of straw and constantly challenged his doormates to belly rumbles, an activity in which Eric and his victim would stand face to face and punch each other in the stomach until someone yielded. He also regularly challenged authority. A court case he brought up against the town of Amherst in 1972 still affects how elections are run today. Silverman also remembers Eric the Rat from his days at UMass. Oh, Eric the Rat. Uh, he was just a rabble-rouser, to use a, an old phrase. He was a clear counterculture icon. He had a huge following. But really before Kent State, it was Kent State that made him really a big figure at UMass, beyond the kind of small little group of counterculture hangers-on on the periphery of things. Silverman's talking about the Kent State Massacre. On May 4, 1970, four students were killed at Kent State University in Ohio during a peaceful anti-war rally against President Nixon's announcement of plans to move U.S. troops into Cambodia. Tonight, I'm David Brinkley, NBC News. Kent State University in Ohio has had campus violence for three nights, causing the National Guard to be called in, and today the Guardsmen opened fire on the students, killing four of them, two young men and two young women. A dozen or more others were wounded, some by gunfire and some by bayonets. The university is closed and all faculty and students have been sent home. This massacre sparked a wave of outrage across the country, especially on college campuses. A few days before that, on May 1st, Bobby Seale, one of the co-founders of the Black Panther Party, was being tried for the murder of a fellow Black Panther member in New Haven, Connecticut. Thousands of his supporters gathered near Yale University, and many students joined the protests, making some older alumni and New Haven citizens upset with what they perceived as the university's support of the protests. Students at colleges and universities across the country walked out of their classes and began a national strike. A poster from UMass in 1970 lists the three demands for the national strike. Number one was the immediate withdrawal of U.S. forces from Southeast Asia, Number two was the end to systematic repression of political dissidents like the Black Panther Party. And number three was the end to university complicity in the war effort by ending ROTC training and research programs funded by the U.S. Defense Department. Realize that we have to fight. We cannot dance. We cannot throw prisoners. We have to start fighting. We have to start fighting back. Those three brothers. At UMass Amherst, the students on strike focused on educating local schools and fellow students and committing to a policy of nonviolence. Students pushed for final exams to be canceled and grades to be assessed as pass-fail. They took on numerous different roles, a student-led strike committee made up of representatives from the dorms, sororities, and fraternities on campus formed to provide a central body for the strike leadership. A separate grievance committee represented students whose professors would fail them if they went on strike. Many students attended educational workshops run by fellow undergrads, graduate students, or faculty members instead of classes, or went to local high schools to give presentations about their anti-war efforts. All social events for the rest of the semester were canceled, even Spring Day, the social event of the spring. These were replaced by rallies held down by the campus pond, usually centered around Eric the Rat and including copious amounts of psychedelics, according to student newsletters posted around campus. Clearly more than half of the student body supported the strike, I think. Probably 20% was extremely active politically in terms of 
talking to people, uh, trying to get people off campus to understand what was going on and why, contacting politicians, all of that kind of stuff. I think another maybe 25% of the folks were uh, deeply invested in the effort to end the war, but weren't as overtly active. And then about half of them were along for the ride. In Silverman's 1971 Spectrum article about the student strike, he wrote that UMass students awoke from their post-1968 slumber to fight against the war. He described the strike as something unique to college campuses. Older adults could not understand why the Kent State massacre affected students in such an emotional way. After the news of Kent State spread across campus, students were horrified and angry about the massacre, and the strike officially began on the next day, Tuesday, May 5, 1970. Students working with the strike committee put together canvassing routes, drew up lists of which academic departments supported the strike or not, and established a free daycare for the children of strikers. Faculty from the five colleges in the area, including UMass, met and ruled striking students could not be penalized by giving up failing grades, and made a joint statement in support of the strikers' three demands. During the strike, history professors at UMass built a living archive comprised of posters hung around campus, daily collegiate articles, and real student accounts of the strike. Dr. Jane Meyer Rausch, who was an instructor at UMass in 1970, made copies of the letters students gave her detailing why they chose to participate in the strike. At the time, she went by Miss Loy, so that's who the letters are addressed to. These letters now belong to the UMass Library Archives. I wasn't able to find the real authors of the letters, so I asked for a few current UMass students to read them, 52 years later. Miss Loy, over the weekend, I had a chance to sit down and think things over about the strike. I may not support all the points of the strike, but I do support the no-war policy. Thank you. John R. Batten. Mrs. Loy, I have reservations concerning this. I do not agree with all points of the strike platform. Specifically, Bobby Seale, the Black Panthers, and ROTC. And I feel it is unrealistic to strike classes until all troops are withdrawn from Southeast Asia. However, I do feel that these are events here on campus or in New York that I want to participate in. This strike is a community effort and needs all participants to demonstrate to Nixon the need for withdrawal from Southeast Asia. Pat Clancy. Mrs. Lloyd. Initially, I thought the strike was going to go unnoticed, so I did not support it. But during the past week and a half, I have changed my mind. If it accomplishes nothing else, at least Washington realizes that the universities do not consist of bums, and that we are people just like everybody else. Richard S. Shane Pine. Mrs. Loy, I'm very involved with the strike. I'm on the steering committee, and I seem to have a finger in all its subsidiary pies. For several years, I've been campaigning for the Black Panthers. Not that I believe in their political ideology, necessarily, but I'm almost totally convinced that they've been denied their constitutional rights, that they are being systematically persecuted, and that they've been imprisoned for their rhetoric, not for their actions. The incredible fact that for four students, life has ended, they've seized existence because somebody representing the power of the state had the authority to take their lives, it's enough to make a radical out of anyone. 
The strike has raised the level of political consciousness of my peers drastically within the last week. I cannot help but feel that this is a good thing. If a student in this most idealistic phase of life can go through four years of enlightenment about human misery, betrayal, and ignominy without even once becoming aroused and righteously angry enough to do something about it, he is something less than human. Sincerely, Patricia Hannigan. The student strike continued until the end of the 1970 spring semester when most students left Amherst to return home for the summer. The nationwide strike had provoked ripples that affected even the highest levels of the federal government. President Nixon retreated to Camp David, a secure federal facility, for two days during the thick of the strike because senior staff in the White House feared the activity at college campuses might be the start of a national insurrection. The war in Vietnam didn't end until five years later, in 1975. According to the U.S. government, it left over three million Vietnamese people, both citizens and soldiers, dead. The U.S. suffered just under 60,000 casualties in comparison. The fall 2021 semester at UMass was rife with student activism and protests. On Sunday, September 19, 2021, a post on the popular anonymous social media app Yik Yak alleged that a female student had been drugged and sexually assaulted at the UMass chapter of Theta Chi. More than 300 protesters gathered later that day and again that night outside of the Theta Chi house calling for a university administration to disband the fraternity chapter. Mark Doherty, a junior here at UMass, was one of those protesters. I just remember hearing through the grapevine from friends of mine in group chats, as well as anonymous social media platforms like Yik Yak and Reddit, that an instance of sexual assault had happened at the Theta Chi fraternity house that Saturday, and it was just really devastating. And this instance ended up being some sort of catalyst for people to come forward to discuss instances of sexual assault and rape that happened to them within other fraternity houses on campus. September 2021 was not the first time the UMass chapter of Theta Chi had been in trouble with the university. In the spring 2021 semester, the chapter was placed on interim suspension after its fraternity house hosted parties violating COVID-19 restrictions. The chapter had also been put on suspension back in 2017 after a rowdy party caught the attention of local law enforcement. The protests during the day on Sunday, September 19th started off as peaceful, but some members of the crowd became more agitated as more and more people joined the group. The police were actually called several times on us when we were just standing outside on the sidewalk um, with our signs. And I remember the police did approach us at one point and said to us that we were fine to protest there so long as we were not being unruly, didn't trespass on the property, things like that, right? Further on into the protest, the fraternity brothers that were inside the house did try to instigate the crowd and try to get a rise out of people that were protesting the fraternity and sexual assault in general. Just going outside of the fraternity house and them just like videoing us and giving the, us the finger pretty much from the window. Some fraternity brothers also left the house during the protests, yelling and throwing cans at the crowd from their cars. After fraternity brothers engaged with the protesters, the crowd responded with anger. Several protesters damaged the fence encasing the house's backyard and threw eggs at the house. 
After a while, some brothers from Theta Chi came outside and started to raise an American flag on the flagpole in their front lawn, but a protester stopped their efforts by throwing a coffee cup and hitting one of the brothers in the head. The protesters were becoming very unruly. Eventually, it wasn't just the Amherst police that came out or the UMass police. It was also state police that came out. They ended up going back on their word about how if we just stay on the sidewalk, we would be okay. They told us that if we did not disperse from the sidewalk in front of the Theta Chi fraternity, that everybody there. So this is like over 100, 150 people would be subject to arrest. Please. Please don't lose your education over this. There's a process. There's a process for that. This isn't it. This isn't the process. After the daytime protest broke up, students met up again at the Theta Chi house later that night. Doherty did not attend the night protests, but reports from student media outlets depict the night protests as much more chaotic than their day counterparts. Students gathered near the Chancellor's house on the northeast end of campus and marched down Orchard Hill to North Pleasant Street, where the Theta Chi house is located. The protests turned violent as the night went on. Protesters destroyed the fence around the Theta Chi property and flipped cars they thought belonged to Brothers of the Fraternity. Doherty says the next day's protests were much more meaningful because of the people who attended them. At the protest on Monday night, survivors of sexual assault addressed the crowd directly and spoke about their own experiences. I remember distinctly there was one girl who talked about how she was assaulted at a fraternity on campus not even three, four weeks ago. There was just so many people talking, and I actually did know some of them, so that was just surreal to see them, people that I had known, just talk about the, their experiences being sexually assaulted by friends, by neighbors, by family, things like that. And they talked about how they wanted to protest what was happening with UMass Amherst because of what they experienced. After these protests, many students continued to criticize the administration for what they perceived to be a lack of response to the sexual assault allegations published on Yik Yak. An email sent out to the UMass community released a statement that, despite the protests, nobody had come forward at the time to make a report of sexual assault happening at Theta Chi. The statement said the university, quote, cannot take action against alleged perpetrators, whether they be individuals or organizations, without actionable evidence, end quote. In late September, two weeks after the protests, the UMass Student Government Association, or SGA, made a statement condemning the existence of rape culture at UMass and called for administration to implement the Survivor's Bill of Rights, which was first presented to the university's chancellor, Kumbal Subhaswamy, in 2015. This Bill of Rights creates more accessible options for victims of sexual assault to make reports, mandates thorough criminal investigations of reported assaults, and provides victims with support from experienced professionals. The fall 2021 semester ended with the SGA passing and adopting the Survivor's Bill of Rights, as well as the emergence of another group on campus about to make waves. I don't want to risk my life to get a college education, but that's what UMass Amherst is making me do. Disabled and immunocompromised students should not have to choose between their health or access to education. Universities have the means and funding to mandate testing for all of their students. COVID testing helps track the spread, which can then be used to minimize the spread, which in turn protects the entire community. Those are the voices of Access UMass, a group that advocates for the rights of disabled students on the UMass Amherst campus. Access UMass launched at the end of the fall 2021 semester and went viral online in just under two weeks. In one of the group's Instagram videos, UMass student activist Maya Pohl shows followers what it's like to navigate her way to a dining hall in her wheelchair, 
she demonstrates how the roads and entrances to the dining hall aren't truly accessible to wheelchair users. The video's caption reads, this is what accessibility looks like at UMass, and the post gained almost 80,000 likes on Instagram. Access UMass member Zachary Stewart says he discovered the organization through videos like that one. So a colleague of mine at The Wire sent me the video. They had asked if I would want to interview uh, Maya when I got, I got the chance to interview her at the end of last semester. And, you know, just hearing he hearing her story and hearing, you know, what hearing what she was trying to do, like, that resonated with me. Stewart says the creation of Access UMass has filled a hole in student activism here. The creation of the group is the first time Stewart has seen disabled students being represented in activism on campus. Access UMass is a group of students with disabilities created to make campus more accessible for students with disabilities, but not just students, but also you know, the staff as well, in that there are barriers, uh, both physical, but also social, emotional, and you know, psychological, what have you, uh, barriers on campus that prevent students with disabilities from accessing all parts of it that our able-bodied counterparts are able to access. And I'm, you know, just happy to be involved and I'm happy that, that there is a group uh, on campus finally, you know, lighting a fire under the administration, so to speak, to ensure that students with disabilities are being heard, being seen, being respected, and being understood. Since the creation of Access UMass's social media accounts, the group's cause and supporters have grown exponentially. Its TikTok account has almost 10,000 followers, and its videos garner upwards of 100,000 views. The content on the Access UMass social media accounts is focused on spreading awareness about the issues disabled students face on the UMass campus. Since early February 2022, all of their content shows different students using mobility aids attempting to access buildings UMass administration has labeled as accessible, and showing their viewers how inaccessible the campus truly is. Access UMass has a few major goals. One of them is ensuring campus is accessible for students using mobility aids. This means prioritizing road cleanup after snowstorms and making sure every room in every building has automatic door openers installed. Another goal Stewart is involved in is setting up a Defined Residential Community, or DRC, for disabled students. Stewart says the reception of Access UMass on campus and on the internet has been mostly positive, and he's inspired by the support the organization has received. I consider myself lucky in the fact that I'm able to walk, but obviously with difficulties, but I'm, I'm able to walk, I'm able to, I'm able to advocate for my needs, and I'm also able as best as possible and I'm also able to to have access to certain things that you know other people might not have might not have easy access to and so you know me using my voice to help those that can't necessarily uh, advocate for themselves has always been something important to me and so you know I'd, I'd say access UMass kind of just it it came about largely out of that desire to help. This is the time to, you know, to understand that it's like, oh, it, maybe it's not all about me, <laughs> you know, especially in the society we live in. It's like, and if you understand that, then you're, then you should be able to understand where someone else is coming from when they say that something is directly affecting them and that you have 
and that you in your position of privilege and power can do something to mitigate that yeah i would i would honestly say that it it does more it, it does more good to have people in in our corner and it and it's definitely and i would say definitely between the end of last semester and this one it, there's definitely been a, a big surge of that Activism at UMass plays a big part in ensuring students become active and informed citizens before and after they've graduated. Student protests at UMass have shaped university policies from the 1960s when female freshmen had an 8 p.m. curfew all the way through December 2021 when the Survivors' Bill of Rights was passed. The student community feeds off the legacies and priorities of politically active towns nearby, like Amherst, Northampton, and Springfield and they channel that same spirit towards fighting for matters they care about. This has been Izzy D'Amico on the next episode of It Happened in Amherst. Welcome to the W.E.B. Du Bois Library, a quiet space for students to study. A peaceful place of productivity, full of rows and rows of books. A building that represents the academic prestige of UMass. At least, that's what people usually expect the UMass libraries to be like. But it's like a castle with hidden passageways. There's more to this building than meets the eye. Tune in next week for an audio tour of this mysterious tower. Thank you for listening to this episode of It Happened in Amherst. If you're interested in hearing more about this podcast, please visit our various social media accounts. This episode was scripted and hosted by me, Izzy D'Amico, and edited by Izzy D'Amico, Emily Klein, and Dr. Kelsey Whipple. Special thanks to the archivists at the UMass Library, especially Annie Salonger, Caitlin Morris, and Jeremy Smith. A very special thanks to Professor Stephen Nissenbaum, Professor Anne F. Brettlinger, and Dr. Rausch for helping to preserve materials from the student strike of 1970. In this episode, John R. Batten was voiced by Will Kellogg, Pat Clancy was voiced by Kitty Ryan, Richard Shane Pine was voiced by Michael Donnelly, and Patricia Hannigan was voiced by Mickey Kleinman. Thank you for listening. <laughs>